Two Tribes is a two-part documentary series for RTE looking at the history of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and their roots in the Irish Civil War and how an intense rivalry gave way eventually to a coalition government. Now we bring you extended interviews with participants in the series. Phil Hogan was a Fine Gael heavyweight, Environment Minister in Enda Kenny's first cabinet before moving to Brussels as European Commissioner. Phil Hogan, thank you very much indeed for joining us for this conversation on the general subject of civil war politics and the political parties. How would you explain the differences uh, between your own party, Fine Gael, and Fianna Fáil? Well, uh, the late Sean O'Leary, who was a regularly, regularly a director of elections in the Gary Fitzgerald time, used to say, well, they were in when we were out, was normally the way it was explained at that time because there was such a long period of time when Fine Gael were in opposition. Which largely, I suppose, over the years, it, it, you know, it, it came from being... Uh, you know, a decision about how you were fixed in relation to the treaty to how you were fixed about personalities generally. And, you know, the, the haughty Fitzgerald era crystallised that, I suppose, into, uh, you know, the nuances in policy because both parties were centre ground. Uh, and But the personality cult of politics started, I suppose, during the haughty Fitzgerald time. But was there a sense that, uh, in, in talking about personalities, that... Fine Gael people would regard themselves maybe as a cut above and uh, with higher standards than Fianna Fáil. Well, that was a general perception. And I suppose Fine Gael people, you know, were not into the modernisation of a party structure and fighting elections on the ground to the same enthusiasm or motivation of Fianna Fáil. And, of course, we were waiting for people to acknowledge the brilliance, uh, the brilliance of the, the party and the uh, personalities associated with it and that they, they deserve to be in government in order to do the right thing whatever that was at the time. So that was a general manifestation of the, uh, the, lack, of an, the lack of motivation, modernisation or party planning that went on at Fine Gael until the Fitzgerald era and then after that under Enda Kenny. And where policy is concerned and priorities, is there much or has there been much to, to, to differ between the two big parties? I think that Fine Gael took a very responsible position on the economy and on the fiscal position of the country. And, uh, you know, we weren't prepared to take chances in terms of people's money. We treated it as if it was our own money. Uh, and, but we certainly then could have done more in order to broaden our base into societal expectations, uh, a shift a little bit towards the centre-left, which came with uh, the Fitzgerald era. But before that, we had a very solid core vote on, in, in t at 30% plus in relation to the centre-right views that we took on issues like law and order, like security, and like strong fiscal policies that actually gave us a solid economy. And, you know, people like the late Richie Ryan, who had to manage through an energy crisis at that time, you know, he was, uh, you know, uh, nicknamed Richie Roon for the right policies that he was trying to pursue in order to help our country through that difficult time and help our people. And, of course, he won a European election seat in 1984, subsequently by saying Richie was right. And... Then coming on to the Fitzgerald era, I mean, to what extent was that a transformative moment when Gareth Fitzgerald became leader of Fine Gael? Well, the, the traditional Fine Gael uh, you know, views that were being expressed uh, under the Cosgrave era uh, were very solid for the core voter. But if you wanted to challenge Fianna Fáil, you had to broaden your base. Uh, and you had to shift into the societal expectations of people in relation to many issues of concern, which were sometimes anathema to the Fine Gael core voter. Uh, but Fitzgerald, with the help of people like Peter Prendergast as General Secretary, brought a new professionalism and modernisation of the party and also broadened the party's base through bringing more women, more young people involved, more broadening the base in terms of our attitude to social policies 
with the result that we had the backdrop of the Fitzgerald Hohe uh, conflict in politics at the time in terms of the personality cult that we were able to accentuate uh, the, the support for the party and get 39% in 1983. To what extent did you set out as Fine Gael and the party to portray that rivalry or to use that rivalry essentially as good versus evil? It was absolutely necessary in order to mobilise your own forces that you had a, some bogeyman or woman in the other camp. Uh, and Charles Hohe became that person. And uh, for some of the middle ground Fianna Fáil supporters, Fine Gael were able to provide uh, you know, an attractiveness for, well, you were anti-Hohe, but at the same time, you were able to support the more plural, liberal views that were being expressed by, say, people like the O'Malley wing of the Fianna Fáil party, uh, and able to you know, win some of those supports in the progressive liberal wing of, the, of, of, of society at the time. You mentioned Peter Prendergast. Uh, he effectively ran the party organisation. Um, how, how would you summarise his approach? Was it ruthlessness? What characterised it? And to what extent would you have learned and observed uh, for yourself uh, from Peter Prendergast? He was the first General Secretary of Fine Gael, I suppose, ever, that decided that we needed to do something different than what we had done previously in terms of modernising the structures, bringing more young people and women into the party, diversifying our party to an extent where we were more attractive as a party to vote for, and he went to all of the, the necessary steps in a ruthless way in order to achieve those ob objectives. But he, of course he had the support of the leadership of the party in doing that, which you couldn't do otherwise. So he was a, a, a marketing person by background. So he analysed the research, but he did the research. We never did research before, we never did opinion polls. And any time we did them, we ignored them up to that. Uh, so therefore, uh, he was probably the start of the modernisation of the Fine Gael way and the better Fine Gael way of fighting elections and how to win. He brought a new dimension to it where he mobilised the grassroots to fight for a cause, but equally he diversified the candidate selection and got good quality candidates to challenge the incumbents. So he got the best out of everybody and he generated this will to win in Fine Gael for the first time. At what stage did you set your eye on a dull seat and maybe further ambitions? Well, in 1982, my late father, when he died, I was co-opted to Kilkenny County Council. And I never expected to be in national politics at that time because my local TD was just living five miles away, uh, Kieran Crotty. Uh, and uh, that was the way it was. And he was going to go on for a considerable period of time. That was the expectation. But uh, an opportunity arose where I could go for the, uh, the Senate in 1987 after having an unsuccessful run for the Dáil. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was within a very small number of votes of getting elected to the Dáil on my first attempt. But I got elected to the Senate and that's the breakthrough, I suppose, in 1987 that allowed me to go on to be a Dáil deputy from 1989 to 2014. Given Peter Prendergast's contribution and your own, I mean, would, would you be satisfied that Fine Gael as a party were, like, had a party machine to match Fianna Fáil? How did that comparison pan out? Well, I think ultimately we were able to challenge the best of what Fianna Fáil were throwing at us in 1980s and in the 1980s, subsequent general elections. Uh, but I think between the Fitzgerald government and the, the, the Kenny-led party, uh, there was we dropped off into the old habits a bit. But we came back, uh, certainly in, in, in 2002, after having an, an, a very difficult election campaign where it was either you know, shape up and modernise and reform the party structures, reform the, the narrative of the party and get more people involved professionally in the party. Otherwise, we were going to go out of business. You remember at the time where even you know, the leader of the Labour Party was suggesting that we could have a reverse takeover of Fine Gael. We had done so badly in the 2002 election. Uh, and that wasn't the first time that that debate happened, but 
Fine Gael had 450,000 first preference vote cast for it in 2002, so we had a good basis on which to recover. There were, between the leaderships of Gareth Fitzgerald and Andy Kenny, there were three other leaders. There was Alan Jukes, there was John Bruton, and there was Michael Lunan. You say things dropped off. What, what kind of things were neglected or went wrong? The professionalism and the marketing approach, the modernisation of the structures, the, 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 the attention to detail of the ground war that was needed to challenge Fianna Fáil on the ground, that, in my view, dropped off at that, at those, during those times. Now, it, it wasn't an easy time for Fine Gael to be in politics because we had come out of government where we had a difficult time in government. Uh, but then under John Bruton we got into government largely by accident and turned out to be a good government. But we, we forgot about the fact that we were going to have a general election in 1987. And with 8% growth in the economy, having a, you know, a very good time in government, we couldn't win the election. Why? Because we didn't organise ourselves properly to win the election. We weren't ready for an election, even though we probably operated during that era uh, like a political party were thinking that elections were probably never going to happen again. We were too busy, to, too busy in government. You've been in the engine room during several difficult times uh, for the party. For instance, uh, there was the heave against John Bruton. You would have defended John Bruton and tried to save him. What do you recall about that? Well, it was a, I was chairman of the parliamentary party at the time, uh, and uh, I remember the seven-hour meeting. You know, everybody felt that they must say something at those meetings in order to be open and transparent about where they stood. Uh, that could be tactical, but also they wanted to tell their constituents as well how they were fixed on this issue of the leadership of the day. And John Bruton, you know, uh, certainly had come under, I think he, on four or five occasions he had to defend himself uh, in the parliamentary party uh, because, you know, people's expectations had risen a lot in, uh, after the Fitzgerald era about what we should be able to do to challenge Fianna Fáil. We were no longer afraid of Fianna Fáil in terms of challenging them, but, but the polls were bad performances weren't going as well as they should be and therefore people got uneasy and uh, and uh, when they got uneasy of course there was a usually a, uh, resulted in a leadership uh, election so by a small margin he was defeated in 2000 and Michael Noonan and Jim Mitchell then uh, were the people that were put in place for the purposes of taking the party to the next stage the dream team well it didn't work out that way i suppose Look, the, the, we all know the history of that there was a mistakes made in policy uh, but you know, well-meaning people, Michael Noonan and Jim Mitchell, but unfortunately they were probably more number two, number three people than they were number one people, and that turned out to be the case. And subsequently, uh, you know, Jim Mitchell, as we know, had been a great minister in the government previously, a uh, great reforming minister, and subsequently Michael Noonan became a very good minister for finance when the country needed a very solid pair of hands. So that swings and roundabouts of politics. You could be in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time, but John Bruton, at that time, was always under scrutiny uh, in order to deliver the killer blow. So what was your own role in trying to pick up the pieces afterwards? It was a leadership election after the 2002 uh, election, and uh, Enda Kenny became leader. The other candidates were Richard Bruton uh, and Gay Mitchell and myself, and we all promised that we would help Enda as best we could to bring the party back to its good days again. And uh, I got involved a bit with the organisational modernisation, we reviewed headquarters and the structures with the help of the Flannery Commission, which was commissioned under the chairmanship of Frank Flannery. And that pre presented the blueprint for where we were to go in terms of that modern approach that we needed once again that we had in the Fitzgerald time under Peter Prendergast. We needed to get back to those days and we were successful. There was a lot of progress made by the party in the 2007 election. Yeah, well, the, the, the success of the 2007 election came from the 2004 European and local elections, where we won more seats than Fianna Fáil in the European elections. 
when we brought in new candidates and we had the best possible team we could put out because we were a very pro-European party. We had Mairead McGuinness, Avril Doyle, we had Jim Higgins, Simon Coveney, Gay Mitchell, and they all won. So this created a confidence-building measure for our supporters on the ground that we could be winners again. And that translated then into the 2007 election where we went within a very small number of seats of defeating Bertie Ahern. But Bertie Ahern was perceived to, to have outperformed Enda Kenny, say, in the leadership debates, also in the Dáil. Um, he had that momentum. I mean, did you always believe that Enda Kenny was Taoiseach material? Well, I suppose no other party leader of Fine Gael came under such scrutiny in a negative way from the media as Enda Kenny. I'd say every day he was wondering to know what was the next piece of negative news that was going to be written about him. Uh, and that went on during the entire period of his leadership. No one accepted that he could be a, a Taoiseach that was worthy of the office. And of course, he proved everybody wrong in 2011. And he was a very successful Taoiseach in restoring our economic sovereignty, in bringing us back with the connections that he had with the help of our European friends towards where we are today. But there was a serious loss of faith on the part of almost his entire front bench, yourself being an exception, uh, in 2010. Well, they turned out to be a minority. They thought they were a majority, but they turned out to be a minority. And of course they were, they were reading the papers and lo looking at the polls like politicians normally do, even though they say they don't do, they do. Uh, but at the end of the day, people want to be winners which was a you know, fire in the belly, as it were, uh, as a former Fine Gael politician said one time. And that is exactly what Enda Kenny was trying to put into the Fine Gael party, that there could be winners again, uh, but we had to do certain difficult things. Uh, and we had to fight a hostile media uh, that didn't want him there. And of course, they were helped along the way by uh, you know, a very trenchant, uh, indirect campaign against him by Fianna Fáil, who were very effective at this in, the, in terms of community politics. In what way? How did Fianna Fáil well, work Well, you know, how could you put Kenny in office and you know, whispering campaigns about various you know, inadequacies that he had in terms of uh, being a, a proper Taoiseach, notwithstanding the fact that the Fianna Fáil leader was going through a tribunal at the time. The public were prepared to overlook that if they felt that the person in charge was good in the economy. And, uh, and you know, could secure was the it economy. a kind of a whispering campaign, or what was it uh, on, on the ground? It was a very effective you know, two-pronged strategy where you can attack him in the doll as an inadequate person for the role of theatre, but equally, you know, uh, in, in the way that Fianna Fáil are more successful altogether, probably the most successful party in terms of you know, creating this kind of mantra in the community as well, whether it is in sports organisations or in, 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 in the local place of people's workplaces, uh, they were able to convey a view that this person, you couldn't possibly elect him as Taoiseach. But of course, they turned out to be very wrong, the media and these people. Take me back to the 2010, the, the heave, that heave against Andy Kenny. Um, what was your own role in that? And, and I mean, like in regard to maybe seeing it coming perhaps, or how you would react to the events when they started to unfold? Well, you could see it coming that people were getting uneasy and I had warned Enda Kenny on a number of occasions that this was coming. Uh, and he, you know, Enda takes it all, everything in his stride. But we had a, an idea of who was going to be positioned uh, as opponents. Uh, and when it came, uh, I have, like Enda was very much, you know, experienced politician. He knew what he had to do in terms of the face-to-face -face meetings with individuals to convince them about the fact that he could bring the party to government uh, and bring them to a better place than we were, you know, for years before that. And uh, he was successful in winning that contest. Uh, he certainly brought 
uh, try to bring a unified structure to the party in advance of the 2011 election and uh, you know put people that were against him back on the front bench again in order to make sure that we had the best team to fight that election. Did he at any stage show any doubt that you needed to keep reassuring him? No, I, he, he's a very uh, professional and mature politician of long standing. Uh, and when he eyeballs you, uh, he gets a sense of whether you're telling them the truth or not. But of course we had a lot of double checking and triple checking of people to make sure that they were, uh, you know. What was Michael Noonan's position during that eve? Well, Michael, Michael Noonan uh, uh, was somebody that uh, developed a very close relationship with Enda Kenny subsequently. And I think that that, was the, that he was the turning point where that relationship began. Because he hadn't included him in his own front No, page. no, and uh, uh, probably realised that that was a mistake. Uh, but Enda Kenny, uh, you know, didn't panic about that. He was very professional about that decision by Michael Noonan. And that particular event in June 2010 provided a new basis of where they could work together. And I think they came to a meeting of minds during that heave that they could work together. And of course, they did work together successfully on behalf of the country from 2011 to 2016. Are you satisfied that Michael Noonan supported Enda Kenny during that heave? Well, I'll never know what conversations took place between Michael Noonan and Enda Kenny, but I know they took place. Uh, and uh, and I have no doubt that they had a meeting of minds uh, in a satisfactory way for both of them. What kind of things would you yourself have said to waverers? I couldn't go into that, no. These are very private conversations. I'm not asking you to name names, I'm just thinking the kind of lines of persuasion you would have used. Well, uh, you know, if you're in touch with the people in the parliamentary party on a regular basis, which I was, I didn't have to do a whole lot because I knew exactly how they were thinking. I knew who was possible, who was not possible. Uh, to persuade to a particular point of view for, to support Enda Kenny at the time. But I knew who was winnable uh, and uh, where, you know, you had to present all the facts in front of them. And what kind of facts? Well, about electoral prospects for themselves was always, you know, usually that's what works best with individuals in parliamentary parties is about their own future and their own prospects of getting re-elected. What kind of things would you have pointed out to them then? Well, I talk about their own personal future in terms of being re-elected and who is the best leader in order to accommodate their requests in, in constituencies where uh, you know, they may have particular views about rural issues or urban issues are very different. And that you know, we needed a leader to be able to take all these matters into account. And what about an individual's prospect of advancement then in the event of the party getting into power? I never did that, I never, because I had no authority to do that on behalf of the leader. Uh, but the, it was up to the leader to decide those matters, and that's exactly where I left it. Would he have had those kind of conversations with people? I have no idea. I have no idea. But whatever he did and said to various individuals uh, during that particular time, uh, he obviously convinced the majority. And then the recession happened, the financial crash, uh, the bailout, the troika, all of those things. I mean, you couldn't but win, I suppose, as an opposition party in those circumstances. Well, this is probably one of the myths of political life that, uh, you know, that Enda Kenny and the party has had to grapple with. There was no problem in getting 65 seats. But the notion that Fine Gael could nearly get a majority on its own was certainly unbelievable, uh, if you say that. And I know that you had several programmes yourselves in RT in relation to, and uh, which you were the interviewer, uh, analysing how Fine Gael could win 70 seats. But we got 76 and could have won 80. And the, the, the reason why we got more seats and more votes than perhaps our percentage of the first preference vote uh, deserved was because we didn't, we had respect for people's number twos, threes and fours and transfer. We were transfer friendly. 
and we managed the campaign in a very modern, professional way with a day one to day 21 campaign, which Fine Gael, in my view, never ran before. And we also brought into play, for the first time, a major investment in social media, where we realised, I think we were the first political party to realise that an investment in social media was key towards penetrating a, a segment of the electorate, especially young people. And of course, we had the Five Pine Plan, where we brought in a, a narrative uh, uh, about what we wanted to do for the following five years. But we had it in simple language that people could understand, not in the usual difficult, complex language of traditionally Fine Gael would produce. And at the end of the election campaign, I recall very well, I, I mentioned to Andy Kenny that there are, you know, soft Fianna Fáil votes that we can win. And that he was in a great position to do that because of his background and because of his partner and his wife. Uh, you know, the relationship was a fairly benign one with Fianna Fáil and he could actually look for support from soft Fianna Fáil votes and therefore we, we came up with a plan that he would ask for you know, Fianna Fáil people who cared about their country to loan the vote to Fine Gael on this occasion. And it came to the end of the campaign he decided not to do it, so I had to do it. So I, that's where the phrase came from, uh, you know, in the last press conference before the election, that if Fianna Fáil supporters are concerned about the future of their country, to give us a loan of your vote on this occasion to resolve the mess that we're in and to restore our sovereignty. Whose idea was that? Just mine. Uh, yes, I was director of elections at the time. When did it form in your head, that idea? I'd say about 20, 30 years uh, I've been forming that view. <laughs> that I, you know, I, I, I know some of my Fianna Fáil friends would say that, uh, that they regarded me as a little bit dangerous in strategic terms because I thought like them. You thought like a Fianna Fáil? thought like a Fianna Fáil. This was very dangerous for Fianna Fáil people to be saying this to you. Could, there be, a higher, could, could there be a higher compliment? Uh, it was a great compliment when some of the people in Fianna Fáil were saying it. So, but it, we, we were able to... Uh, but Enda Kenny was very benign and a very potent uh, potential vo uh, uh, vote-getter vote for Fianna, soft Fianna Fáil votes at that time when we were in economic and financial crisis. So we were trying to mobilise that manifestation of support from him, from centre, from middle-of-the-road people that wanted to give an opportunity to a new government for Fianna Fáil to maybe re, you know, re, reincarnate itself after the financial crisis a bit. Uh, uh, but he, he was certainly able to get number ones, but also number twos, threes and fours, which gave us this massive seat bonus. Did you have, with the exception of maybe finance and the ministries that Labour wanted, would you have had the pick of the portfolios that were there for Fine Gael ministers? No. No, but I had certainly been uh, opposition spokesman on environment, community and local government. And, uh, you know, I like that portfolio because it has had a very strong community base and a community involvement, which is largely where my upbringing in politics was. I could see what was happening in local government, see what was happening on the ground, that it wasn't working properly. Uh, and we had many national policies to implement on the waste and water conservation and environmental challenges where we had 31 European Court of Justice judgments against Ireland where we were paying out a large number of fines and that had to be addressed. When you look back though at your tenure as Minister for the Environment, the introduction of water charges is the one that's most associated with you. Whatever about other uh, positive initiatives you brought forward and in the end they, they were withdrawn. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I was very disappointed that we went away from water conservation as a policy. Uh, 40 per 45 percent of all the water provided in Ireland was going into the ground at an enormous amount of cost to the taxpayer. So that had to be addressed. 
and we put in all the meters around the country in order to make sure that people uh, would pay as you use, as you would any other utility like gas or electricity. Uh, and, you know, my successors decided that they wanted to go away from water conservation. And I think that's a mistake. As a result of what happened with the water charges, there's been a general reluctance, almost bordering on a, a fear, trepidation, uh, at any sense of bringing in a new general tax, uh, of maybe switching the TV licence to a household charge. Politicians and government just do not want to go there. Well, at the time that I left office in 2014, two-thirds of property owners had paid water charges. And then we abandoned the notion of water conservation. And that set the scene then for any other charges that were going to come, come down the way uh, or could be considered by government in broadening the tax base for to reduce the taxes on middle-income people that were paying everything. So there's always going to be 5% of the population against whatever you want to do. It wouldn't be beautiful if you could actually say you didn't have to pay any tax or charges on anything. It would be a wonderful society to have. We'd have very few services. Two-thirds of the people were paying, two-thirds of the householders of property, owners, paid, yeah. uh, property owners uh, when you were leaving. Do you believe the government, subsequent governments, should have stuck with them? Yes, and I understand now the Labour Party. By the way, the Labour Party, and, uh, led by Eamon Gilmore and Enda Kenny together, had a good working relationship. And they, that government, will, by the, the decisions that it has made at that difficult time for our country, uh, will be seen that the Labour Party played a major role in sticking to the Troika uh, requirements, but also sticking to decisions that were made in government, very solidly supportive. After the local elections and European elections of 2014, that changed. Uh, the new leader of the Labour Party, uh, John Burton, decided that she needed to have a new look at the way that Labour was uh, engaging with government. And she felt that uh, at the time, and uh, the, my successor in environment, Alan Kelly, decided you know, that water charges was one of the issues, even though it wasn't a very big issue in the local elections at all on the doors, that this was a litmus test, uh, you know, of how you were doing on the ground vis-a-vis -vis other political opponents like Sinn Féin, and therefore the charges had to be dropped. And I think that, that that will be seen in hindsight as a bad decision. How did you end up going to Europe as Commissioner? Well, the, the Taoiseach asked me to know what I consider be the, the next European Commissioner, uh, you know, some months before the opportunity arose and uh, I, I certainly always had an interest in becoming uh, in, in European matters. I was actually the front bench spokesman on European affairs and re regional development back in 1993 under John Bruton. So I, I did have a, a major interest in what was happening in Europe. I would love to have the opportunity to participate as a commissioner and I let it be known to the Taoiseach that if the vacancy arose I would be interested. And. Was there any doubt that you would get the position? Yes, there's always a doubt because you have a two-party government, uh, you know, and uh, you know, Fine Gael and Labour had to come to the conclusion that they had to have a candidate that would get a good portfolio as well as a candidate that they could agree on. That would have been settled, though, before the government was formed, wouldn't it, in the allocation no, of portfolios? No, it, was never, it wasn't settled until, I would say, June 2014 when the leaders had to have a conversation about it. Remember, this was after a, a local and European elections where it had been a very difficult one for Fine Gael and Labour because of the decisions we had to make, the people were hurting. And at, at the end of the day, you didn't know what personalities were going to but emerge. But you would have been the lightning rod. You would have been the lightning rod for a lot of the anti-government feeling arising of that, uh, resulting from the hard, the hard decisions. Well, actually, when you look at the evidence, produced by RTE and others uh, subsequently, that doesn't turn out to be the case. 
uh, there was many issues that arose during that election campaign, if you go back over the studies and research, will show you that there were issues that were far more on people's minds than water charges. You were ensconced in Brussels, you were doing your job as, as Agriculture Commissioner when the subsequent election happened then in 2016 and a different government was formed. From afar, I mean, you, you would have been paying a close attention to what was happening back home. How, how did you think things unfolded? Well, I might have been far away, but I always pay attention to what's going on on the ground at home. I always have one eye on what's happening in Ireland, so I didn't think things were going well in terms of getting ready for an election. The timing of the election was bad, and I, I expressed that at the time, which appeared in the media, that we should have had the election in November 2015 and not be waiting for February and March when people are paying their Christmas bills to have an election in cold weather. I think most people will realise that that's not a great time to have an election, uh, and you don't win elections in February. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think the leader of Fine Gael and De Kenny at the time wanted to go earlier, but he his partner in government uh, felt that we should wait a bit longer where people would feel the, the fruit, the, the beneficial effects of the previous budget. But people, as you know, once the budget is announced, uh, they don't get a good feeling about it for some time later and then they're always disappointed. And that government then that came after 2016 based, it took a long time to put together, on the so-called confidence and supply arrangement whereby Fianna Fáil facilitated Fine Gael uh, remaining or leading a government with, uh, with some independent deputies like um, Catherine Zappone and, and Dennis Nocton in support. Mm. And that's the way it ended up, because Fianna Fáil were in a very difficult position and Michal Martin decided that he didn't need another election and say it's definitely the government didn't want another election uh, because it wouldn't have yielded any much difference in terms of the results. So we, they just, to be fair to the leader of Fianna Fáil, he grasped the nettle, he felt that, you know, that a confidence and supply uh, government could be put in place where he could buy a little bit of extra time in order for Fianna Fáil to recover more because he had a good election. Uh, and in 2020, then we saw where the fruits of that was uh, adjudicated on by the people and they didn't necessarily appreciate it. But again, it comes back to the point in time that will be seen as having a very positive impact on keeping the, keep, keeping, keeping the, the, the progress that we were making ongoing with the help of the Fianna Fáil leader. And I think the Fianna Fáil leader uh, will, have seen, will, have, will be seen in due course as having made a very brave decision. And what about the ultimate coalition that was assembled in 2020, 2020? Um, did you see that as inevitable, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael in government together? I think Fianna, Fine Gael should have, should have been in opposition. I think they were wrong to go into government. They had the lowest vote since 1948 and 20%. And when you're actually rejected by the people, which they were on that occasion, they should have gone into opposition. Leaving, leaving government to be formed by? Whoever. That was a matter of... The people had decided that Fine Gael had been in government long enough, uh, that the 20% support was reflective of the fact that the, Fine, the, the people did not want Fine Gael in government. Uh, and I, perhaps maybe uh, there could have been a combination of several other political parties put together uh, under whatever leader uh, to form a government where either we should, we should have stayed out and gone into opposition or have another election. So soon after the previous one? Yes. In the middle of the COVID? Absolutely. No, we hadn't COVID at the time. Well, we had by the time the government was formed. And the government was formed, but at the time of the election I'm talking about, when the people cast their vote, they registered their vote. And they said that the Fine Gael had lost the confidence of the people and they should have then 
that the normal thing you do with that is regroup. Fine Gael had chosen that option and, and Leo Varadkar had led the party into opposition. Do you think Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin would ultimately have coalesced? I think that they've found an arrangement where they could work together. Maybe not under the leader of Fianna Fáil, Michal Martin, but I think that it would have forced a combination to come together, either on a confidence and supply basis or a minority government or a majority government uh, uh, together in order to uh, you know, present that to the doll. I, I, but I, I think that if, you're, if you want to have a strong Fine Gael in the future, which is what the premise of your question is, well, then you don't go into government on the basis that you have just lost a significant number of seats and where you're at the lowest votes since 1948. Did the national interest, and that's a much abused term, not require responsible people in responsible parties to do their utmost to form a government at a time of national crisis? We were probably doing that in Fine Gael for 80 years and not getting very much rewarded for it in terms of the discussion we just had earlier. But at that stage, Fine Gael had done what was required in the national interest. It has implemented the reforms that were advocated by the Troika. It had restored our economic and financial independence again. It has helped to start the, the, the put policies in place to rebuild society. But it hadn't been rewarded by the electorate. Going back a little bit uh, to 2017, there was the transition from Enda Kenny uh, to Leo Varadkar as party leader in Taoiseach. What were your observations on that? Well, I think that Leo Varadkar was the best available leader at the time. Uh, I, I, Simon Coveney obviously had a lot of experience as well. Uh, but Varadkar had something uh, unique uh, that could broaden the base of the vote. He articulated the right policy propositions that resonated with me in terms of uh, you know, people getting up early in the morning and being rewarded for their hard work. But unfortunately, as soon as he became Taoiseach, that seemed to have been abandoned as a principle. Uh, and we, had, we didn't see in the subsequent budgets the manifestation of the implementation of that uh, to the extent that he had promised at the time. And that was a mistake. What kind of measures would you have anticipated if that had been his priority, looking after the people who got up early in the morning? When you, well, he has often articulated this himself, which is uh, where middle-income people's uh, people find themselves going on to the higher tax rate at a much lower income than necessary, uh, where you know, services like childcare were not invested in sufficiently well in order to allow the maximum participation of you know, women in, in the workplace. These, are, these were issues that were well known. We were now getting into a situation where we had some money again and where we could send a message to the electorate that these were the priorities. He articulated the, uh, the right priorities in 2017 but didn't implement them uh, uh, sufficiently strong enough to, to resonate with the electorate. And ultimately then he paid a price in the 2020 election. What do you think of him now in coalition with uh, Michal Martin? He's tarnished about to become Taoiseach again. Well, I think that uh, yes, I have no difficulty whatsoever in Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael being in government together. Uh, I think this, uh, that was a, probably a, 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 an, an inevitable outcome at some stage uh, with the rise in, uh, of other political parties and the fragmentation of the electorate general. Uh, but I think that he should have taken a breeder and gone into opposition for a period of time to regenerate and regroup and be a strong uh, leading opposition party now to be able to lead the next government but he's going to be leading the government for the second half of this term. I understand that, and uh, you know, people uh, will suggest that the office of the Taoiseach will help him uh, to reconnect with the electorate. Uh, I hope so, for the sake of Fine Gael. But you have to understand that uh, the populist streak that he has enunciated on many issues doesn't always work with the electorate. And we see that in the polls. We see that in the election results. 
So you have to have you know, certain core values, core policies that are easily communicable to the, to, an, to the electorate, notwithstanding the noise that's in the system with so many different propositions being put forward. But simple understanding by the electorate that you're actually on their side, especially for the people that get up early in the morning, that he enunciated in 2017 is you, something that he goes back should go back to, and not to be following every policy position of the opposition and trying to out-trump them in the expenditure pro programs. One gets a sense listening to you that um, Leo Varadkar has been a disappointment to you as Taoiseach and leader of the party. Not necessarily that. Uh, I, I think that you know the expectations of him were very positive, uh, that he could broaden the base of the party and win again, and. Uh, but he operated on the basis that there was nothing more important than the aerial battle. As in? Uh, you know, in politics you have, you have an aerial battle. In other words, you're fighting with the, the, uh, your message to, to get it out there at the national media, at the national level. But you always have to have mobilisation of the troops on the ground. You get good quality candidates, good organisation, and you need motivation on the ground. And uh, I think uh, the leader of Fine Gael presently prioritises the aerial battle but he neglects the ground war that's needed at election Too time. much about image? Yes, and that becomes then the mantra, uh, that you, you depend on the national media to put out the positive message. And as you know well in the media, you don't always get the luxury of a positive message at national level. But the ground war and the troops on the ground and the good quality candidates and the mobilisation of the troops is also essential towards being successful in elections. And I think he has mis made that mistake. Might your view be coloured, your, your, your reflection on this, by what happened almost two years ago and your loss of the commissionership? You had been promoted from agriculture to trade and then there was all... Everybody's familiar with the Golfgate business and, and you saw the two leaders of government, Fine Gael Tánaiste and Fianna Fáil Taoiseach, moving against you. No, I, 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 of course I was annoyed at the time and still am annoyed about what happened at the time. Uh, but I, I, have, I have, what I'm saying to you now about the policy position, about the professionalism of Fine Gael, the, 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 the way we sell our message, the, what is the message itself? I've been saying that for a while, you know, long before that event. Uh, so it's not coloured by that in any respect. I'm, I'm looking at this objectively and dispassionately. And I don't care who the leader of Fine Gael is. These are the issues that Fine Gael have to address. But returning briefly to, the, the, to, to your dismissal as commissioner or your resignation uh, as commissioner, did you expect better from the two leaders of government here? Yes, I, well, I expected a process of where I could get a chance to explain myself. But they went on this populist um, uh, you know, wave of indignation uh, you know, about what was after happening on that occasion without actually analysing anything. And the conversations I had with the teacher and the tarnished uh, you know, were leaked to the media. Uh, you know, I, when I was speaking to them, they were talking about how we could actually explain what had happened. And at the same time, they were writing a letter that was going to appear in the front page of the Sunday Independent and calling for my resignation, effectively, or to consider my position, is the way they put it. And they were feeding the information through the government system to the President of the Commission, as if what they were saying was actually fact. And we subsequently see from a recent court case that it turned out to be wrong. So, could they have saved you? It wasn't their business to, to save me in a way. They could reflect the view about, what, in their opinion, what happened, but they certainly went on a campaign, in my view. Why do you think they, they did that? Well, I think there was a domino effect created by the resignation of the Minister for Agriculture, Derek Leary, at the time. 
and he was actually sitting beside me at the same event. So they felt that, I suppose, when he had to resign or was forced to resign, that was fair game to go after uh, the Fine Gael man, the commissioner. Did you get a sense at any stage that one of them or somebody close to them, senior figure in the government of the day, had their eye on replacing you? Well, there's no doubt about that. That subsequently showed to be the case. Uh, there were several figures that were, that were looking uh, at possibility of being commissioner. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, they are now proven to be completely wrong in their assessment. They started out saying I broke rules and broke laws. I, I was a bit sloppy on guidelines, but I didn't break any rule or any law. And I took a court case in Galway in February 2022 to actually show everybody what actually had happened and how wrong the government and the media were. Has the country lost out by virtue of your having to vacate the commissionership? We have an excellent commissioner, Maria McGuinness, now in, in, in Europe, and she's in a very important portfolio in financial services. And it's a matter for others to judge whether, whether we have lost out or not. The matter is now closed. I've had a wonderful six years as a European commissioner. I did my best for agriculture, rural development and for trade. It was an honour and privilege to be asked by Enda Kenny to do that, and subsequently by Leah Radker to be uh, reappointed as commissioner. So I have spent my six years doing what I can for Europe, but also on very tricky issues around Brexit and around trade deals and around... Uh, Do you think you could have made a further contribution from a position of greater strength and influence and experience than maybe the current Commissioner has? Well, trade is the third most important portfolio in the Commission. So it's a very senior position and you usually don't get it unless you have a, a one term behind you in terms of experience. So for a small country like Ireland to get trade, it was a huge you know, boost uh, for some influence that we could exert. And the Trade Department were very centrally involved in the Brexit negotiations with the United Kingdom and the European Union. And of course, I feel that that could have been a big contribution that I could make in terms of the understanding I had on the issues that faced the Northern Ireland Protocol on the island of Ireland. If the two leaders of government here were satisfied that you should continue in the job, do you think President von der Leyen would have been satisfied or happy to keep you? Yes. So was her hand forced effectively by them? Certainly she was taking account of what she was hearing from the government of, of, of a member state. It's the first member state government that ever opposed the, the, the commissioner who was in office. Uh, and, uh, you know, this was the first time, I suppose, that the president of the commission was faced with that. Uh, but she acknowledged that, uh, uh, you know, in, in the course of various meetings they had with her, that there was no law broken. But she says, how does it look in the eyes of your member state? Are you over it? Oh, yes, I've moved on. I don't look back. Are you finished with Irish politics or international politics? I, I'm finished with Irish politics, certainly. And internationally, what role might you have? Well, um, maybe in a few years' time there might be some international role I could consider again, but certainly for the, near f for the next few years, next three years, I was certainly going to concentrate on my new business consultancy. I'm advising a number of high-profile global companies at the moment and I'm enjoying it. Uh, and so for the next three years or so, I will continue to do that. But I, 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 I'm not ruling out an international role in some organisation in the future.